God's word comes to us today from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. And God said, Let the lands produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Great. Well, it's so lovely to see this place packed here tonight. Uh, when I was walking here in the pouring rain, I thought you might all stay at home and maybe watch it on TV or something like that. But uh, it is lovely to have this place so full. If this is your first experience of the Keswick Convention, and I know for some of you it is, you are so welcome here. And uh, obviously, you're going to be hearing a lot of Bible teaching this week. Um, so I want to um, really speak about what Bible teaching is meant to do in all of our lives. And over here, we have kind of carefully chosen three words to talk us through what Bible teaching is meant to do. Firstly, it's hearing. We're here to hear God's Word tonight, um, not just intellectually, not just to learn about Bible content, but we wanted to change our lives so that we are becoming, becoming like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So really, we haven't heard unless we are becoming like Christ. That's what God, by His Spirit, wants to do. And then after becoming like Christ, we want to serve God's mission. Wherever you are, maybe your home, your street, your local church, maybe God will call you this week to leave these shores and be a missionary abroad. I don't know but be ready to serve God's mission wherever you are. That's how we'll know that we've heard God's word. We're becoming like God's son, and we're serving God's mission. Now, please have your Bibles open. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, um, the whole title for these three weeks is called Human, and it's one of the most controversial topics, but one of the most important topics for us to look at 
and uh, our passage th today is, is really um, about as controversial as it gets. So let's hear God's word with that in mind. Now there is a, a great battle raging today. It's not the war in Ukraine or any other physical conflict. It's a war of ideologies. And at stake in this war of ideologies is the most basic issue of identity. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? What does it mean to be a human being? These are the most basic issues of life. And if we get the answers wrong, the whole trajectory of our lives goes askew. And the battle today is especially over whether I can create my own identity or whether there is a God who has created my identity for me. William Ernest Henley wrote his famous poem Invictus. He wrote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that is the notion that dominates our culture tonight. But that notion flies in the face of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 leaves us in no doubt that we are creations of an all-powerful God. And this famous Genesis creation account does not begin with the question, who am I? Genesis 1 begins with the question, who is God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the uncreated creator of all things. He speaks the entire universe into being, the sun, moon, and stars, the land and seas, the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. The Bible starts with who God is. And we can only understand who we are when we find our place in the creation story. If we leave God out of the picture, we simply won't be able to answer these most basic questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Instead, we will try to forge our own identity, which leads to the confusion and the chaos, I believe, that our culture is experiencing today. If we want to understand what it means to be human, we need to look at the Maker's instructions. And Genesis 1 teaches us three core truths about who God made us to be. Firstly, it teaches us God created us with dignity. He created us with dignity. That's verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. The creation of mankind is treated differently to the rest of creation. It happens on the sixth day, the crescendo day that everything has been building up to. You'll notice when the animals are created, we read in verse 24, let the earth produce living creatures. It's in the third person, as every other element of creation is. But God takes a more personal approach for the creation of mankind. It's in the first person. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So there is a deliberation in the heavenly council before creating men and women. The words are strangely in the plural, let us 
make man in our image. And these are probably the earliest reference in Scripture to the Trinity. We have already seen the Spirit hovering over the waters in verse 2. And of course, John's Gospel tells us that Christ is the Word of God. Nothing was made without Him. So every time it says in Genesis 1, and God said, that is Christ going to work. Each member of the Trinity is involved in Genesis 1. And God consulted within His blessed Trinity before creating mankind in His image. You notice that phrase, in His image, it's used three times in two verses. Verse 27 will say, so God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on this phrase, in God's image. What does it mean? Well, it seems to suggest all the ways that we are set apart from the animal kingdom. So our intellect, our speech, our creativity are surely part of it. While chimpanzees tonight are trying to survive in what's left of the rainforests, humanity has sent rockets to the moon. Humanity has mapped the human genome and set out great manifestos like the Statute of Human Rights. As humans, we write poetry, we create works of art, we search for meaning and purpose, for justice and for peace instinctively. We are not pure creatures of instinct like the animal kingdom. We are spiritual beings who were made for a higher purpose. This is how the American pastor Kent Hughes puts it. He says, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars, swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light-years below the plane of the Milky Way. Though you could witness a star's birth, in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. That child is created in the image of God. And when the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. Brothers and sisters, what dignity we have been crowned with as human beings. And it's so important that we protect the dignity of every human being from the womb to the tomb. I remember Richard Dawkins plucking a worm from the dirt on a Channel 4 science program and rejoicing over how much we as humans had in common with worms. He was looking at just percentages of DNA and so on. Our culture has diminished humanity to being just another animal with a slightly larger brain. But to claim that is actually to diminish God's in whose image we are made. Psalm 8 says, You made mankind a little lower than the angels. That is our place in the created order. Lower than the angels, above the animal kingdom. But even that phrase, lower than the angels, has a huge caveat. Jesus Christ did not become an angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for men and women. 
and that the Creator Himself should take on human flesh propels the dignity of mankind into the stratosphere. And as Christians today, we are being remade now into the likeness of the Son of God. Romans 8 says this is God's whole plan for us. God's goal for us is to conform us into the image, into the likeness of His own Son. And He will complete that good work that He has begun in us. 1 John 3 says, when we see Christ, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What a glorious prospect. The early church father, Athanasius, said, Christ became what we are so that he could make us what he is. And that is God's ultimate vision for the human race. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the dignity that we have been given as human beings. And it makes every human being on this planet infinitely precious. From the baby in the womb to the child living in the squalor of a South American flavella, to the brother or sister with Down syndrome who gives you a big hug when you go into church on Sunday morning. From the moment of human conception, an eternal soul is brought into existence, a soul with the unique ability to be in relationship with his or her creator. Astonishing. The Cambridge scientist Sir John Polkenhorne said, man looks through a telescope at the wonders of the universe without realizing that the person looking through the telescope is more wonderful than the whole of the universe put together. Brothers and sisters, is that how we value the people all around us? If we have this Genesis 1 vision for humanity beating in our hearts, We will care for the poor. We will do everything in our power to lift people out of poverty. We will make our voices heard to defend the millions of babies who are being sacrificed in the womb for the sake of expediency. We will love the people in our church, especially the awkward ones, because they were made in God's image They have been redeemed by the blood of God's Son and they will partake in eternal glory with us. Of course, the most controversial part of this verse in our day is that God made mankind male and female. Now, I could have preached this five or ten years ago and it wouldn't have been nearly as controversial as it is today. But verse 27 clearly says this, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So part of our dignity as human beings is the beauty of maleness and femaleness. Two definite and distinct biological sexes presents it plainly on the first page of the Bible. So it's really important. It's interesting that the animals aren't presented as male and female, even though biologically they are male and female. But there is an emphasis here on the maleness and femaleness of humanity as the first thing that is said about humanity because it matters so very much. 
Genesis shows that men and women are equal in dignity. They are co-heirs of eternal life. But if we try and flatten out maleness and femaleness and say there is no difference between men and women, then we lose a key part of the image of God. Our society today presents us with kind of two conflicting images. One is that there is no difference between the sexes. And the other is that gender is fluid. It's a continuum. Our culture thrives on gender uncertainty today. We can be whoever we want to be. Now, of course, it's important to show compassion to those who struggle with gender dysphoria and to deal with them gently. Gender dysphoria and the mental health struggles that so often accompany it is a real issue. We need to be compassionate as Christians. But God's word is clear. We do not invent our own identity. It is given to us by the God who made us. And any gender uncertainty we have, which is a very real thing, is due to the fall. And it needs to be redeemed along with every aspect of our humanity. I mean, for myself tonight, as a heterosexual male, my sexuality is affected by the fall. I need to watch the images that I look at. I need to be faithful to my wife. I need to guard my own lusts because I am a fallen being sexually. The fall has affected all of us in our sexuality. We can only understand our humanity through the lens of God's Word. And as Christians, we can be confident and full of hope in this identity that God has given us as human beings. Our world today, it seems more than ever, is struggling for meaning and significance. And we offer the ultimate message of hope that God made us in His image and He has invested us with dignity. And as Christians, we have a better story to tell about human sexuality than the world does. Glenn Harrison, whose lectures were phenomenal last year on this very issue, Glenn Harrison said, it's time to recover our confidence that the Christian vision for sex, marriage, and family also conveys societal and relational goods that can bring blessing and flourishing to all. If we want to understand who we are as human beings, we need to follow the Maker's instructions. Firstly, Genesis 1 tells us He created us with dignity. Secondly, it tells us He gave us authority. God gave us authority as human beings. That's verses 28 to 30. Being made in the image of God in the context here primarily refers to the authority God has given us over creation. So verse 26 says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky. And this theme of authority continues in verse 28. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now this verb subdue is fascinating. It's used elsewhere to talk about bringing another nation under subjection. 
And the idea is that mankind is allowed to explore and uncover the natural resources of the planet. And notice here, it's quite subtle in verses 29 and 30. In verse 30, the animals are given plants to eat. But in verse 29, humans are given seed-bearing fruit and plants. And the idea there is that God doesn't just give food to human beings, He gives the seeds that enable us to cultivate and develop farming and be creative and use technology and produce crops for the blessing of the whole planet. God gave us authority over the earth to exploit the earth's resources so that we could flourish. Now, of course, this command to subdue the earth is not a mandate to treat the world any old way we want. We're here to rule over the earth as God's image bearers, so it's in line with His character as good stewards of this beautiful blue planet that He has entrusted to us. And I think there are two unhealthy extremes that we can fall into as we think about looking after the planet. The first is to say that ecology really has nothing to do with me. I think that's probably the view I was brought up with. After all, God is going to destroy this planet one day and He's going to usher in a new creation. Why bother looking after this? It's got a sell-by date. Absolutely not, says Genesis 1. God appointed us to be caretakers over this planet in His name. And turning a blind eye to ecology is one unhealthy extreme. So watch very carefully with the coffee cups you have this week, which bin you put them in. It's important. You're an image bearer. Look after the planet. Now the other unhealthy extreme is to turn environmentalism into a religion. A religion that seems to trump the gospel. However important it is to be a good steward of the planet, and it is very important, it is also a fallen planet that needs redeeming. It is not Mother Earth. That whole idea of Mother Earth goes back to pre-Christian paganism. The Earth is the generous creation of a God who sent His Son to redeem it. And He will bring this current creation to an end, and He will usher in a glorious new creation. And that is the main message we have to preach. We must not sidetrack the gospel for the more popular message of save the planet. Everybody will love us when we're saying save the planet. But when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, He's not talking about the planet. He's talking about lost people, people who are lost in sin and will perish if they don't believe the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, regardless of what will happen to our ecosystem. And in fact, Romans 8 says, the whole of creation is waiting for its redemption. It's waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. So let's play our part in caring for the creation that God has given us but let's also recognize that this creation needs redeeming as a first priority. And of course, this idea of, of subduing the earth relates actually to how we think every day about our workplace. 
When you go back home, recognize that your everyday work is valuable. You are subduing the earth in your own way. You are God's image bearer, invested with skills and creativity to use for God's glory. You do that at work every day. You'll remember how Daniel was honored for the role that he played as administrator in Babylon. And in fact, Jeremiah told the exiles going to Babylon, he told them to pray for the prosperity of the city. So you pray for the prosperity of your city, wherever you are, wherever you're working, and be part of that prosperity. We have a glorious vision for work given to us by Genesis 1. Christians should be the most satisfied, the most fruitful employees of all, because we're not ultimately working for a human boss. We're working for the Lord. Our work is worship. And as Mark Green so beautifully put it, God didn't make Adam a priest. He made him a gardener. Your daily work matters. You are fulfilling God's creation mandate. We have been given authority over creation, says Genesis 1. One part of that authority, according to verse 28, is subduing the earth. Another part of that authority is filling the earth. Verse 28 says, be fruitful and increase in number. And I think this is saying more than just make sure you have lots of children. This filling the earth, we've got to see through the lens of the entire Bible. This is a command to fill the earth with people who know God. This was a command given originally to Adam and Eve who were in daily fellowship with God. This is a mission mandate ultimately that gained further momentum after the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But you don't have to wait to the New Testament to hear the call to mission. Genesis 1 is the first mission mandate. Fill the earth with people who know God. And Habakkuk takes up this theme when he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, he is playing off the mission mandate of Genesis 1 and Habakkuk and multiple prophecies in Isaiah of filling the whole world with people who know God. Now this mission mandate for you and me very practically begins at home with how we prepare our children and our grandchildren to know the Lord. Yes, we want them to know maths and English, but the key passion of Christian parents is for our kids to know the Lord and then be sent from our homes as disciple-making disciples. Pray that about your children right now, even the children not yet born. Lord, make my children, my grandchildren, disciple-making disciples. And then we think and we pray and we strategize to reach our friends with the gospel, to reach our street, to encourage evangelism in our local church. And I pray for some of us, we will receive a specific call to leave our country, as of course Abraham does as early as Genesis 12, to leave our country to take the message of Jesus to another country where people have not heard of him. Romans 10 says, How shall they call on the one they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless we preach? And how shall we preach if we are never sent? The Keswick Convention has been renowned for 148 years 
for global mission, reaching people for Jesus who have never had the chance to hear the gospel. I hope we never lose that passion in Keswick because it's being lost from local church life all across the UK today. To send out missionaries who will follow in the footsteps of Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and Wadkin Roberts, the Welshman who brought the gospel to Manipur in North India back in, back in 1910. And he saw Manipur go from zero Christians to 90% Christian within a generation. Let's not just read biographies about these missionary greats who were actually very ordinary people called by an extraordinary God. Let's write a new story today of men and women willing to leave these shores to carry the gospel across the globe and fulfill the mandate from the very first page of Scripture to fill the earth with worshipers of God, with people who know God. If we're going to understand what it means to be human, we need to listen to the Maker's instructions. Genesis 1 says, God created us with dignity. He gave us authority, authority to rule over the planet and authority to fill it with worshipers. And thirdly, says Genesis 1, He destined us for glory. That's from verse 31 of the passage. He destined us for glory. Verse 31 of Genesis 1 is the culmination, not just of day 6, where God creates mankind and the animals. It's the culmination of the whole week of creation, including land and sea, oceans and stars, dolphins and eagles. Verse 31 says, And God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. Genesis 1 is less a science textbook than it is a hymn of praise to a majestic and glorious creator. And I promise you there are few better spots in the world than Keswick to appreciate the wonders he has made, at least when it stops raining. Creation was very good when God made it. And even though this creation has been marred by the fall, you can still perceive so much of its original glory. And the God who gave us this beautiful creation that has been marred by human sin so much, He has promised an even better one to come. I love that hymn by Timothy Dudley Smith. It has the words in it, Darkness defeated and Eden restored. Now, I know what Timothy Dudley Smith means by that, but in the new creation, Eden will not be restored. Because no matter how beautiful the Garden of Eden was, sin could enter. A snake could slither in and deceive. Danger lurked. But the descriptions we have of the new heavens and the new earth, which Isaiah and Revelation give us, assure us that no sin will ever enter into this glorious new creation. Before Eve ever took the fruit from the tree, God had already planned to send His Son across the stars to come and die to absorb sin's power in his own body, and then to rise again to usher in resurrection life. A whole new creation project began when the tomb opened on the third day. And that resurrection life has the power to renew the entire cosmos and to banish sin forever. 
So if we are in awe at the beauty of the lakes and the mountains of Cumbria, and we should be in awe, I hope you get a chance to be in awe this week, just remember, the best is yet to be. The glories of this current universe, they are just a taster of the new world that he is preparing for us. Every lawn today has a weed. Every ocean has pollution. And every man is destined to die. Imagine what the cosmos will be like when all of those elements of decay are removed, when there are no more weeds, when there's no more pollution, where there is no more decay and death, all taken away. That won't be Eden restored. That will be the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. Robes will be white as snow. The waters will be sparkling blue. Tears will be wiped from our eyes and every dark night of the soul will be dispelled forever and we will live in an eternal new dawn. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. We are not in the land of the living, heading to the land of the dying. We are in the land of the dying, heading to the land of the living. God destined us for glory. And when glory finally comes, the phrase, it was very good, in Genesis 1.31, won't quite capture it like the wine that Jesus prepared at the end of the wedding feast in Cana. Jesus is leaving the best to last. The Christ who became human for you, who died for you and rose again for you and lives for you today at the Father's right hand, that Son of God is coming back to take you home. And at that moment, you will be more human than you have ever been. You will be everything that God ever intended you to be as you take on the image of the Son of God Himself. If you want to understand what it means to be human, you need to follow the Maker's instructions. He created us with dignity. He has given us authority and He has destined us for glory. If the world was very good when He first made it, just imagine what it's going to be like when He remakes it. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. Let's just take a moment of quiet and think about the word that we have heard tonight. And after this moment of quiet, I'll pray for us, and then we'll sing our closing song. Heavenly Father, thank you for how beautiful you made this creation to be. And despite the fall, we can still see so many glimpses of its beauty. Father, thank you for what and who you made us to be. 
made in your image, male and female. Father, thank you for how you made us. And I pray that even in this broken world where we all share in its brokenness in so many ways, thank you for this promise that there will be a glorious new creation, that Jesus has carried all of our brokenness, whether it's sexual brokenness or brokenness in all kinds of ways. Thank you that Jesus has carried our brokenness in his body on the tree. Thank you that he has dealt with every aspect of the fall. And thank you that when he rose from the dead on the third day, a power was unleashed that will renew this entire creation. Father, we long for that day. And as we wait for that day, help us to play our part in being conformed to the image of your Son. Help us to walk with you. Help us to talk with you as Adam and Eve did so easily in the Garden of Eden. Father, help us to be people of your delight. Restore to us a biblical vision of humanity. And thank you for the day when the character and glory of Christ will be stamped all over our lives. Thank you for him, the model of a new humanity. And thank you that we are being remade to be like him. Continue that process within us, we pray. And help us to be true worshipers as we go. Speak your word to our hearts, Father. And give us a renewed vision of who you made us to be. We pray this for Jesus' eternal glory. Amen.